the leopard just sat there and suddenly it dropped down on all fours and it crept along the ditch and out of sight and everyone just looked at each other in disbelief. You say, well, I've seen this big cat. Some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 23 of Big Cat Conversations. And for this episode we have switched the previously announced order because we are venturing beyond Britain once again. We're going to hear about the large black cats being reported in the United States and we'll consider if there are any pointers here for the situation in Britain. Our guest is Michael Mays who is based in Texas. He is author of the excellent book which I've just enjoyed, Shadow Cats, the Black Panthers of North America. We put a link to that under episode 23 of the links page on the Big Cat Conversations website. So we're going to discuss Black Panthers, and then in the final part of the session we will hear about other work Michael does in his capacity as chair of the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. So we'll get on to that later, but first, Michael, welcome, thanks for joining us. I guess we should start by asking how things are with the virus lockdown in the the United States, in Texas, where you are. Well, thank you for having me. First of all, I appreciate it. We're doing fine here. As you mentioned, I'm in Texas, so we have a lot of space. So the social distancing thing is not as big a problem for us here as it might be for someone in a larger you know, city, say, city like New York or Los Angeles, somewhere like that. We're not packed quite as tightly. And so my family and I, we're doing fine. And we're just kind of hunkering down in our in our homes and trying to get this thing over with. Well, good luck. And, and we're all in it together, aren't we? And we just hope everybody can pull through as best as possible. I agree. And it, it's kind of new to us over here in America. We've been protected from a lot of things in the past due to our the vast oceans between us and pretty much the rest of the world. And the world has gotten smaller through the years. And this has proved that more so than anything else I can think of. And And we've learned a lesson from that for sure. Absolutely. We all need to become a bit more resilient and self-reliant. Okay, Michael, can you briefly tell us about the geography and history of this? What states are covered by Black Panther reports and how long has it been going on? Well, it's been going on for at least a couple of hundred years. It's predominant in what we would call the American South, stretching from Texas east to Florida, up through Georgia and the Carolinas coming back east through Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri, those areas. But there are sightings from all over. But the bulk of my work and research has been done where the most sightings have occurred, and that's Texas and the American South. It's a very prevalent belief in the South that these animals are real, so much so that it's not really considered anything all that unusual when someone reports seeing one. They're not common by any stretch of the imagination, but they're not unusual either. To the folks in the South where I grew up, they're just another animal that lived out in the woods or the bayou or the river bottoms and such. And that's the way most folks think of them. They get quite worked up when you tell them that there's no such thing. Then they're ready to argue and and fight with you because you are 
basically impugning their character for someone who says they've seen one when, when you express the opinion of mainstream science that there is no such animal. Yeah, I thought it was intriguing in your book when you make the point that if people were reporting a spotted jaguar or an ocelot or something which is known and could be just beyond its range or a thing which is officially documented and not too much of a culture shock in the area, officials would take that seriously. But as soon as it's something which doesn't tick the boxes, they tend to just discard it and evade it. They do. They shut down pretty quick when you mention a large black cat. Now, a lot of people who delve into this are pretty hard on wildlife officials for that, but I'm going to defend them just for a moment. I worked a little bit for the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. They get a lot of calls and a lot of reports about a lot of crazy things. 95% of the people who are calling in these reports, they simply don't know their wildlife very well. I can't tell you how many emails I personally have received with photographs attached where someone is telling me they've seen a, a mountain lion, a, a cougar in their front yard, and they were terrified. And I'll get kind of excited. I will look at the photo. I'll download it. And it's a bobcat, almost without fail. Mm-hmm. We've become very urbanized, and a lot of people are no longer familiar with the indigenous wildlife of the area. So I don't want to be too hard on the wildlife officials. I do think they should have a little bit more of an open mind than they do, but they're stretched very thin. And it is true that most folks simply, they're just not familiar with what they're seeing. I think that's perhaps a bit of a difference with the situation here. I'm now at 1,300 plus reports of out of place large cats in Britain in my reporting system. And I swap notes with many good people who take credible reports as well. And so we can see the trends and the patterns and the consistency. And a lot of these people I've stood in front of at a meeting or after a meeting, after a talk, or at a rural show like a county agricultural show. So you're eyeballing them and you're feeling their emotion and you're hearing their conviction and you're listening to the consistency and the detail. And I think in Britain here, to me anyway, it's 80 to 90 percent are credible and not mistakes. I think if they are mistakes, it's a feral cat or a domestic cat. I would agree with that over here. I'm somewhere between five and six hundred reports. And I can count on one hand the number of times where I just believed someone was being flat out untruthful, just telling me a lie. I do believe there were quite a few who were mistaken because of the the very point we made earlier about people not being familiar with wildlife. And scale is always an issue when getting people to judge the size of an animal. It, it's it's always difficult, especially say they're out in the middle of a of a field. There's not any kind of object, a shrub, a tree that we could go and measure that object and then apply that to the animal in a photograph or something like that. It's very tricky business. How far away was it? Obviously, the closer it is, the bigger it's going to appear. And things like that are always a problem. But like you, I believe the vast, vast majority of people I've talked to have been very serious. They, They simply have no reason to make such a story up. There's nothing to be gained by it. So I, I'm like you. I, I think the vast majority are honest folks who just looking for someone to share their experience with. Yes. And your book, what comes across is that you act as a lightning rod. 
people will see you as somebody who won't scoff at their reports automatically, will listen to them. And so you get trusted and it flushes more people out. But of course, you then mustn't become gullible yourself, must you? You still have to be objective when you're taking them. I, I imagine all of that occurs to you. Absolutely. And, you know, the old saying is trust, but validate. And that's what I try to do. Yeah. Michael, do you think there's an issue about what I would call the recorder effect as well? You get a lot of reports because you're based in Texas. So to you, Texas seems a real spike um, geographically in the reports, although it's a huge state, of course. But do you think if mm-hmm. there was an equivalent person as active and well-known as you on the subject, it would be reported well in other states? And I just recently found out about this forthcoming documentary about the situation in Wisconsin, where a lady there is doing research. Is the recorder effect an issue, do you think? I think it absolutely is. The way this started for me is I started a blog, a personal blog, where I talked about all manner of cryptozoological subjects. And one day I did a post on Black Panthers and my inbox just exploded with replies. Many of them were reports from people who had seen something years and years before. They simply had had no one to discuss it with until they read my post and, oh, this is the guy. You know, they had sat on this information for, in some cases, literally decades. And suddenly they had an outlet. They had somewhere to go with it. And the first couple of years um, when I was looking into this particular subject, I would get a dozen, two dozen new reports a month, some of them historical, some of them from years back, along with the, the current ones. As time has passed, that has slowed down a little bit. And I think it's because a lot of those people who have seen something in the, in the distant past, they've now got it out of their system. And now what I tend to get, three or four a month that are current. Um, but I do believe if you had one person in each state in the American South, I, I think you would see a spike in reports. And who knows how many before the advent of the internet and social media and things like that came about, how many of these things were seen and maybe discussed amongst family members or close friends, but then it stopped right there. We just, we just have no idea. Sure. I always guess how many never get reported and never will, partly because people will not trust the likes of you or me or anybody and just don't want, are just too reticent to report, or they just will not see the likes of you and me on the internet or anywhere. I imagine the majority of sightings of credible encounters will not get relayed to any source anywhere. It's a good possibility. To some degree, we're just like we were when we were in grade school. And we don't like to be made fun of. We don't Mm -hmm. like to be the center of unwanted attention. We don't want to be ridiculed. That never really goes away from anyone. No no one wants to stick themselves out there like that. And uh, when something like this happens, there is a tendency to sit on it and not talk about it. They may know I've written a book on the subject, but I'm still a stranger to them. There is a wall to break through there. But until it's um, a little more acceptable and mainstream science is a little more open to the possibility to listening to folks. The last thing anybody wants to do is to be on the local newscast. They tell their story and then it's edited in such a way where now the animal expert follows them and basically says they're drunk, 
a liar or a hoaxer. No one wants that. We've got to try to break down that wall. Yeah, I remember a case of that, exactly that, a few years ago in the Scottish press. And the witness of this Black Panther, she was a veterinary nurse. So she was familiar with seeing cats and dogs every day of her professional life at different distances, but particularly close up. And the professional scientist who they got to make a comment was an ornithologist. I mean, he is very good on all manner of species, but it was like, actually, I think she knows these mammals better than you do, mate. And what a, a crazy, perverse situation that the press looking for this validation. Yeah, and the media cycle moves so quickly, there's a tendency for laziness yeah. on their part. Uh, again, no way should they have been talking to a bird expert. They should have been talking to a mammologist, someone who's familiar specifically with, with cats and, and with what's going on in your part of the world. Yeah. But even so, a veterinary nurse is a pretty credible person in terms of Absolutely. these animals. Could we move on to the actual candidates, um, Michael? And I think this is where we are going to differ between Britain and America. And first of all, can you just list the long list? And then we'll go into two of them. If we could go into potential melanistic pumas and potential black jaguars in a bit more detail. But could you just go through the list of the candidates for Black Panthers? Certainly. Top of the list would be the two you just mentioned. The jaguar, which was native to North America, almost all of North America, dating back to the last ice age. The mountain lion or the puma would be the second of the big two candidates. The third would be a small wildcat called a jaguarundi, which is native to central and northern South America and does venture up, according to um, distribution maps, into South Texas, southern New Mexico, and Arizona. Not very common. Most folks not familiar with them at all, but they do have a black phase. Uh, so that's the third one. And Michael, they're about the size of a, a little bit bigger than a domestic cat uh, with a sort of otter, otter type head. Typically, they're not much bigger than a domestic cat, but they do look different, as you, as you alluded to. They're, they're almost a weasel, otter-like looking cat. They have kind of this odd flat head. They're long-bodied. Uh, their legs are a little shorter than you would see on a lot of domestics, but they have this unusually long tail, which adds to the uh, the effect of them. Most aren't much bigger than house cats. However, some do get about a third bigger. So if you're not expecting to see that and it darts in front of you, you know it was bigger than a house cat. It looked different than a house cat. Most people are not familiar with the species at all they're going to jump to a Black Panther conclusion. So those would be three. Um, a fourth candidate would be the one the media leans on the most, I believe, which would be the escaped exotic cats. Of course, they're in the news a lot right now. Netflix is airing the Tiger King mm -hmm. uh, documentaries. So they're shining a pretty unfavorable light on the exotic pet trade there, which is good because it needs to be exposed. But that tends to be the most popular theory whenever someone sees one of these cats. It must be someone's pet who's escaped. Mm -hmm. And then the fifth would be, and, and a lot of people scoff when they first hear this, but uh, feral cats, they're basically the same exact species as a domestic cat that would be in someone's home, but they are feral. And there is some evidence to suggest that these feral cats are at least in some cases, growing to unusually large sizes in some places. 
the best example of that would be down in Australia. Surprisingly, when we looked at the Australian situation in our episode 10 of Big Cat Conversations with Simon Townsend, he himself has had a lot of experience in culling feral cats uh, in the bush for pest control work. He had never seen an outsized one or something which had sort of seemed to be a mutant one. And Mm -hmm. although there's plenty of suggestion in press reports beyond Victoria where he is, he doesn't buy it. He feels that they are pretty much naturalising melanistic leopards, like we feel is predominantly the case in Britain. So the escaped sort of non-native cat that's now naturalising and proving it's doing fine in a new environment seems to be the common theory in Australia and in Britain. I would agree that most are not going to attain any kind of unusual size. However, we need to differentiate a little bit between a, an escaped domestic that has gone wild versus a feral. Mm. A feral is a cat that has been born in the wild and has had no contact with humans. So it's truly a wild animal. It's the same species as your tabby that might be laying on the couch in the living room. But there are several examples of cats in Australia that have attained unusual sizes. There was a cat shot by a man named Kurt Engel in 2005. And let's see here. It, it was the size of a small leopard. It was mm. six feet from nose to tail. And he allegedly cut the tail off, didn't he? And, and floated the, the body down the river. He did cut the tail. It was DNA tested. It came back as just a domestic cat, Felis catus. Some photographs seem to show a little forced perspective where maybe the cat is a little closer to the camera than the man was. And we've all seen photographs like that. Uh, Anyone who's a fisherman knows that when you're holding your catch up to be photographed, you stretch your arms as far as you can out in front of you to make it look bigger in the photograph. (laughs) Always look at a fisherman's thumbs. If his thumbs look really large, then he's cheating a little bit on this picture. But the bottom line is, let's say instead of six feet nose to tail, let's say it was five feet. Yeah, That's still a huge domestic cat. Now, these ferals are mean. They're wonderful hunters. They're really causing a lot of problems down there for small mammals and birds of Australia. They kill millions of them a year. They have no natural predator to keep them in check with the possible exception of a dingo, which ironically enough is another introduced species. So (laughs) there's really not much to keep them from doing very well. There's really no reason that some of them, if they're in particularly rich environments, why they couldn't grow larger. Now, I agree that most of the time that's not going to be the case, but there are some outliers that they're the size of small leopards. They're really unusually large. Why they're always black, I don't know. To me, where this is going on when you look at the sort of feral cat option, and you point to it in your book, is whether they might have interbred with something else. That mm-hmm. has forced that, what you might call giganticism. Has there been a mutation? Has something triggered a mutation in a part feral cat? And you've suggested that bobcats could be in the mix there in your book. I mean, because you, you do feel that we need to open our minds to the possibility of some hybrids that would work. Yes, I think hybridization, it's not much different than the what we're seeing here in North America between the wolves and the coyotes. Mm. We have a species of wolf native to Texas called the red wolf. It's um, a little smaller than the typical gray wolf, timber wolf, like you see in most movies and such. It looks like a really big 
coyote. And somewhere along the line, some interbreeding took place. And now we have these animals that the locals call either coy wolves or coy dogs. And they're doing just fine. Some of these coyotes occasionally show up. They're really big. And I don't know if there's a coyote left in Texas that doesn't have some red wolf blood in it. With cats, a similar thing might be occurring. My understanding, talking to some experts in the field, is that as long as a physical coupling is possible, not impossible due to size differences. For example, a Siberian tiger is never going to be able to mate with a domestic house cat, but a large house cat and a bobcat, the coupling can take place. There can be offspring, which would naturally size-wise fall somewhere in between the bobcat and the house cat. So it's going to be on the big side for a domestic, and it would have the genetics for a long tail, and that could explain some of these bigger cats that we're seeing as a possibility. Mm-hmm. I personally feel like a bobcat is more likely to eat the domestic pet than to mate with it, but uh, you can't rule it out altogether. Yeah. Yeah, I think in a situation in Britain where any out-of-place cat is in a low population and is going to be inclined to spread its genes, I think that's less likely to happen. But I I quite understand where the numbers are higher. The conflict is more likely than mating, yeah. To me, what defines these cats, wherever they are in that list of candidates, is to be something which should interest us for this subject. They've got to be ones that are the scale and the behaviour which predate deer. Apex predators, um, large carnivores, and they're the deer killers in the ecosystem. So that brings us back to the main two candidates that I'd like to quickly talk through. I think the black jaguar one is fascinating because you're you're suggesting there's possibility of a sort of remnant isolated population. Here's what I found as I was researching the science of the genetics behind melanism. The gene for melanism in leopards is actually recessive. And so it's the exception to the rule. Yeah. The genetics for melanism with jaguar, however, that's a dominant trait. Now, the vast majority of jaguar are spotted. They have the rosetted coats. And when I first got into this, my big question was, well, if these are jaguars, I knew they could be black. Why has no one seen any of the regular marked cats? If you've got the black ones, I can see that. But we should be seeing the other 80, 90% which are spotted. And that just was never the case. You know, every time I saw one of these things, it was black. As I looked into it, found that the gene for melanism in jaguars is dominant. So if one of these black individuals were to be cut off, if there was a small population cut off from the larger breeding population down into Mexico and Central and South America, and you had a, a melanistic member in that population and who was one of the alphas who got to mate, who got to breed, then with that trait being dominant, it would not be long before most, if not all, of that relic population would become black. It, it's, I kind of went back to ninth grade biology <laughs> with the Punnett squares. We used to do that for, you know, what colors the plant's flower are going to be and things like that. And, yeah. But with it being a dominant trait, that kind of swayed me a little bit and made me a lot more open to the possibility that that's what people were seeing, along with the fact that these cats were native to Texas. Um, it's thought that they were extirpated, they were hunted out, but we know for a fact that mountain lions are making a nice comeback 
in not only Texas, but across the, the eastern United States, mm. if the mountain lions are able to do it, it might stand to reason that the jaguars are too. And if they happen to be melanistic specimens, that could explain a lot of what people are seeing. And we do know jaguars have crossed the border from Mexico and Arizona. They've been photographed. New Mexico has actually set aside the land based on the fact that jaguars are coming across into southern New Mexico. And uh, if it's happening there, there's absolutely no reason it could not happen in Texas as well. I think it's a very strong candidate. I think it's fascinating. And I think it's another reason why professional zoologists and wildlife managers should take it seriously, because a isolated population of jaguars needs to be cherished, if you like, and studied and monitored. All I would say is I fully hear your point about it being melanism through the dominant gene. But in the zoo experiments of two blacks breeding on, you do get 25% spotted. Having said that, in a small population, that's still going to mean that the very few spotted jaguars and they're so furtive and cryptic and difficult to see that it's not going to happen much. Right. The thing with jaguars, though, Michael, is if they were misbehaving, and I know they, they, if they've got good prey availability, they wouldn't need to misbehave and go for horses or cattle or pets or whatever, but they, you do notice jaguars more if they misbehave. They've got the capability of taking out horses and cattle, which a leopard really and a puma doesn't do very often unless it's a, var, a huge tom. So you'd be seeing some of that, wouldn't you, mm -hmm. which I guess you're not much. Not much. Now, we do see an occasional horse or cow kill a calf, especially from time to time. And, and the farther, just if we go by the Mexican population of jaguars, the farther north the population is, the smaller they seem to be. What you see in northern Mexico, those cats are, are not as robust as what you're going to see down in the Amazon, for example. And, you know, maybe they've learned the lesson. Again, I'll, I'll kind of go back to the coyote example. Wolves in North America were brought right to the brink of extinction because they never learned to live in close proximity to humans without getting in trouble. Mm. And as a result, they got shot. Coyotes have learned not only to survive, they thrive near urban centers. Central Park in New York has a pack of coyotes running around in it. Downtown Chicago has a pack of coyotes that live there. You never see them during the day. They have learned not only to survive, but to thrive. Um, I've been very intrigued with an idea that maybe some of these larger cats have learned that very same lesson. And these are the cats that have survived that are now passing their genes on to the subsequent generations. And they are learning to live a coexistence nearby to people. There's an interesting study that came out of India. I wrote about it in the book about some leopards that lived right in the middle of a huge population center. And they were deemed problem animals, not because they had attacked anyone, uh, but just because the potential for a problem was there being so close to so many people. So they were captured, they put radio collars on them, and they shipped them off. Uh, one of them was more than 60 miles away. Another one was taken about 30 miles away. They tracked them. Both of them came back, <laughs> and they using this GPS technology, they were able to see they got within 100 feet of people from time to time. Never an idea that they were there, never caused any trouble for a person. There was the occasional you know, livestock being taken. They not only were surviving, but they actually at least one pair bred and offspring were born right in the middle of this population center. Mm. Uh, there was a 
going to mountain lions, which was the next cat you wanted to talk about. And P22, the Hollywood cat, is an example of an urban cat. It's exactly where I was going. And mm. they're learning to do this. And if that's what's going on, then I think we can expect to see more and more of it. Yeah. I read a slight nitpicking comment about your book somewhere. And this guy, this person said, he doesn't make his mind up and say which is the prime candidate of, of uh, mm -hmm. the, the Black Panthers. And, and I guess uh, there's no problem in being fair minded and saying it could be several, you know, there might be several reasons why people are reporting large black cats, which is fine. And I, I think I agree with you. And, and black pumas is one of them potentially. Well, the problem with the black puma is there's never been one documented. So. You know, with all the, the mountain lions, the cougars that have been held in captivity over all these years, not once has one produced a black offspring. Another problem with the mountain lion concept is they are two-toned in color. They are a honey or tan color on the dorsal surfaces and then their throats, their muzzles, their, their bellies, the ventral surfaces are cream to white colored. Without exception, every report I've gotten has been of a solid black individual with none of that two-toned coloration, which in my mind makes it a little problematic that a mountain lion is the suspect. And now they match the description in every other way, save color. They're the right size, they're the right weight, the long tail, the long thick tail the screaming kind of vocalizations people sometimes report in association with a visual. They fit in every other possible way. But that lack of a melanistic specimen is problematic. And if you look around the world at the cats who do exhibit melanism, they're almost always, they're the exception to what the rest of the population looks like. And the regular population has spots or stripes the solid, say, take an African lion, for example. Mm -hmm. You're not going to see a black African lion. You may see a black leopard, but you look and see those spots are there, and, and there's a what they call pseudomelanism, which they don't truly have that genetic mutation, but the spots are unusually large or yeah. have grown bigger and they're closer to each other, giving the impression of a much darker animal. We're not seeing that with mountain lions. Now, I think the coloration of mountain lions can vary. The thicker the coat is, the darker they can appear. You see one in low light conditions, certainly they're going to look dark. Some of them are almost an ashy gray color. This is how I would answer the critic you mentioned earlier. I do believe it's a combination of several things. I, I don't think every person in Texas or the American South who claims to have seen a black panther that they all saw a black jaguar. Mm. I, I don't believe that. And so he's right in that I don't. I never came right out and said, hey, here's the answer. I would beware of someone who does. Sure. Because no one truly knows. The two big ones, the two big candidates, the Puma and the, the Jaguar, are both prime candidates. And I think mm -hmm. it's just good to keep an open mind on the prospect for black, truly black melanistic Pumas. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not closed off to the possibility at all. Until eight to ten months, they can have those blotchy dark spots. And That's true. Uh, we have the same feature in Britain of people seeing a black cat, which you'd think would be a melanistic leopard from the form they're reporting, but it's got the puma vocalization. 
and we don't think it's because it's wet or it's backlit or it's in the gloom. It does. Uh, it's, it's a low proportion, but it's kept some of us who've got open minds. Well, it would be fantastic. I, I would love for that to be so. I think that would just be a fantastic discovery. Genes can play up and do quirks in an isolated population. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've got an isolated population of pumas on the eastern side, well, maybe. And I noticed in the summary, the little little trailer for the documentary for the Wisconsin situation, some of those witnesses are saying it was a black jaguar, and some of them are saying it was a black puma. Yeah, in my book, there's a gentleman named Jim Broadus who runs a big cat rescue in Florida. Matter of fact, he has the only captive breeding population of Jaguarundi in North America at his facility. He works with pumas every day, uh, does a lot of work with the endangered Florida panther, which is a subspecies of mountain lion. He knows what a puma looks like. Yeah. And he and his wife are driving down the road near the Everglades and big black puma, according to him sauntered across the road in front of them. And he's adamant. He says, I work with them every day. I know what they look like. That was a puma, but it was black. And this is a big cat expert. This guy knows not only his animals, this guy knows more than any skeptic you can line up next to him about pumas. And he insists that it was. So I do not dismiss it yeah, yeah. It's unfinished business, as it were. And I think it's why that you, like me, you frame that a lot of this as citizen science. It's good citizens who want to be uh, objective and disciplined about it and collaborate with researchers, whether they're sort of scholarly amateurs or academic, mm-hmm. f- fully sort of um, professional academics or professional zoologists. You know, that's the way this is going to be pursued and developments are going to be made and broken through by that combination of citizen reporting and collaboration with people who can put it all together and produce data sets and meaningful conclusions. Right. And the bottom line is, you know, why has no one found it? Well, because no one's looking. Yeah. You know, it's this circular logic, which I've run into, you know, science has become pretty rigid Yeah, and not very objective in some of what it's pursuing. Not very objective at all. I have some very intriguing hair samples uh, that were sent in to me by a gentleman who claims to have struck one of these animals with his vehicle. And he pulled some very dark hairs off his bumper and he put them in a little envelope, sent them to me. I reached out to every university in the state of Texas looking for someone not to run DNA tests. I, I wouldn't ask anyone to do that on their dime But before I wanted to pay someone to do it, can you look at these under a microscope and tell me what you see? And before I sent them out, I had a friend who is a citizen scientist. He has his own microscope. This is what he does for fun. He looked at them. He he got a hair atlas of mammals of the world, and he couldn't find a match. He said the closest match he came to was a leopard. And he said, you really should have these looked at. And I said, that's what I needed to know. So I sent inquiries all over the state, every university's biology department, what I got was, there's no such thing. I said, well, how can you say that? Because there's no evidence. <laughs> I said, well, I might have evidence right here. And they said, well, your evidence can't be valid. I said, well, why not? Because there's no such thing. So the circuitous nature of the, the logic and the argument is just it's maddening. And all I wanted to do, just look at it under a microscope and tell me what you think. and then. At that point, if it's intriguing, then I'll take it somewhere and we'll get this stuff tested and we'll see what it is. Couldn't find anybody that was willing to help me. 
Yeah, depressing case of just shutting the door to something which could lead somewhere and be a very fruitful stretch of work for a, a university department. So frustrating. Could we just have one more witness report that you could relay of a big cat? Could we just have a couple of uh, examples? Sure. There's a lady who I became quite good friends with. She lives in Ellis County, Texas. It's a good ways out of Dallas. It's not just the suburbs. It has a creek running through the property. She raises horses. Very rural piece of land. Next to her land was a large parcel, which pretty much been unoccupied for at least a decade. It was heavily wooded, overgrown, lots of wildlife, in particular feral hogs, which are a real problem in Texas. It was December. It was quite cold, and she was getting some alfalfa out of the one of her trailers to put down for the horses, and she's banging around in that trailer. And as she came out, something growled at her from a nearby thicket of trees, a stand of trees, and she kind of stopped and looked that direction. And she heard it again. And then all of a sudden, this animal sprang out of the the brush and and charged at her. Now, she, between her and the animal, was a metal trough from which the horses would drink. The cat, which she clearly was able to identify as a cat, it was nighttime, but there was a light on a pole not too far away. So she was clearly able to identify it as a cat with a long tail. It pulled up on just on the other side of that trough within 10 feet of her. But there was that metal trough between her and it. It easily could have sprang over it had it chosen to. But it stopped and then trotted off, retreated back into the brush. Got a good look at it. Claimed it was black. Has heard some very intriguing sounds. She's even recorded some of them. It's not the sound of a mountain lion. Mountain lions really are not big cats as far as science is concerned. They're they're the largest small cat on the planet, if that makes sense. Uh, One of the things that separates them from the big cats is their inability to roar, that big, deep roar, you know, mountain lion cannot produce. Several times her horses have been injured, big, deep gashes, claw marks. So far, she hasn't lost one to it, but she has had several incidents and it's, it's seasonal. It was twice a year. And within a month or two, she would be able to tell because the horses would begin to act differently. She always knew when it was around. And so she would keep a closer eye on the horses. But that very much seems like a jaguar to me. Now, uh, as far as one that's more mountain lion-like, I've got numerous cases, again, where they associate this kind of hissing scream as opposed to a roar that was in close association with a sighting. In my mind, that's a lot more mountain lion, puma-like than it is jaguar-like. So, And there are numerous examples of those, numerous Mm. examples of those. Could I ask you what the trend of emotions is? In Britain, I don't know whether you picked this up, but the majority that come to me, I would say the witnesses, even if they're a farmer or somebody in the game sector, um, somebody you might think is more likely to be intolerant or hostile even, Actually, the majority of people are okay, neutral, or if not positive or protectionist about them, unless they're causing bother. And horse attacks is is an example. But even many people who have some kind of hassle on their land and feel their horses are threatened or get some livestock kills, some of those make excuses for for these cats. How how are people's um, attitudes and trends of attitudes uh, in in Texas and beyond? Are you able to pick those up? Sure. Most people who see one are... In hindsight, 
you know, they were very excited about it. They felt almost as if it was a gift. It was a privilege to see a cat like this in, in the wild. Now, there were a few encounters that were kind of scary, like the one I just described. And certainly people who've lost stock tend to feel a little bit differently. But in general, there's a shocking nonchalance about wildlife in general. I think it relates to the urbanization of society. You know, we were once an agricultural based society and the families lived on big pieces of land and they farmed and and they were out in the country. And after the industrial revolution, the growth of the cities began and, and more and more people live there and never leave the concrete. And they simply have no opinion whatsoever. And shockingly large number of them don't care one way or the other. It doesn't touch the emotions one bit. It's just a real nature, but abstract in many ways to them. And that's intriguing. That is very different to the British situation. You've not seen one, Michael, have you? You've not had one of these encounters? I did see a mountain lion in the Sam Houston National Forest of East Texas, where they are not supposed to be, uh-huh. by the way. Yeah. But it was the typical blonde, honey-colored cat that you see all the time. It was really a beautiful animal. Uh, we were out driving a forest service road out in the middle of nowhere late at night, and it just kind of came slinking out of the woods. And it was almost as long nose to tail as the road was wide that we were on, and we were able to stop. It kind of paused and looked at us. It was hunched really low, and then it kind of slinked off into the woods on the other side. It was quite a sight. So while it wasn't black, when I told the rangers about it, the next day, they insisted I had seen a bobcat. Yeah, because it was out of place. Well, because we don't have those here. <laughs> and that, that was their statement. And how do you argue that? And, and again, <laughs> and I don't mean to come across as too hard on them, because I know most of the time when they make that statement to someone, they're probably right. But this tail was almost as long as the cat itself. So there's no doubt about about what we saw. And, and I did have a friend with me at the time and who saw it as well. And so it wasn't just me. But no, I've not seen a black one. I would love to, though. In your reporting to you, that the witness reports that come to you, do you get people who report out of place, standard colored puma mountain lions to you as well? I do. Yes, we, we do get those. And uh, I don't know, I, I'm kind of the Black Panther guy. So I don't get as many of them as I do the reports of the black cats. But But I do. Yeah, so you're able to see this trend. They may well be more prevalent in many eastern states than is reckoned officially anyway. Oh, I I don't think there's any doubt of that. Could we move on? We have in the podcast the word of the week, and we try and single out a word for its meaning or because it's helpful for the subject. And the one I was going to pick was one taken from your website. So it's a way of promoting your website, Michael. Your website and your blog site is the Texas Cryptid Hunter, where you write about your exploits. Now, I wanted to do our word of the week as cryptid because it's a word that I absolutely loathe. And not because it's a bad word. It's, I mean, it, mm-hmm. cryptid, it means <laughs> an animal whose existence is disputed, basically. Basically, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's one of those words in America, there's more cryptids per se to, to look into. <laughs> there's more unusual, unconventional um, freaks of nature or whatever to have an interest in and pursue and to consider and do podcasts on. But in Britain, it's just got that connotation that, oh, you're chasing something which is abstract, which is just never going to be of interest in zoology. And so I tend to find it a, a word to shy away from, but you embrace it, obviously. Yes. 
I kind of expand the definition of cryptid from an animal whose existence has not been proven by mainstream science to include what I would call Lazarus species, animals that we know were real, but are assumed to have gone extinct, who pop up from time to time. Going back down to Australia and Tasmania, the the Tasmanian tiger down there, it's a known animal, the thylacine. We know it was real. Mainstream science says it's gone, yet people continue to see them. So I include these species that were thought to be dead, but maybe they're not. Um, And there have been several that have come back from the dead, so to speak, thus the term Lazarus species, the coelacanth, for example. Ivory-billed woodpecker would be one, is that right? An ivory-billed woodpecker, should it be rediscovered, would absolutely fall into that category. And then stretch it even a little further. Well, I'll give you a good example. Years ago, I had a lady in East Texas tell me she had seen a Sasquatch, a, a wood ape, a Bigfoot, cross the road in front of her. It had come out of the woods on all fours. She brought her car to a stop. It came to the middle of the road, stopped, stood up, sniffed the air. It had a a lighter colored face, she said, dropped back down onto all fours, and then ambled off into the woods on the other side. Well, as I really looked into it, what I found is I'm 99% sure what she saw was a black bear. But black bears have been gone from East Texas for a hundred years. So there's no one living there that's seen black bears on a regular basis or in anything but a zoo or on television. But she had seen all these Bigfoot shows on TV. And so her natural inclination was to jump to that as opposed to jump to bear. Because in her mind, she had seen these shows about Bigfoot on TV. She had never even heard of a black bear being in her neck of the woods. They are making a comeback. And more and more people are starting to see them. But so an out-of-place animal, uh, an animal that might be common in one place, is going to really raise a stir if seen somewhere where it is not indigenous. So all of that, to me, falls under that cryptid umbrella. Yes, sure. And it is about associations and connotations. I think it's a good word. I just think too many people in Britain just sort of write it off some, something not to do with serious science and, and serious investigation. And it's a shame. I agree. It, it does have a somewhat negative connotation. And one reason I use that in the, the name of the blog, the site is trying to, and, and let's be honest, there are a lot of kooky sites out there that deal with this stuff and they don't do anything to help our cause at all. So I was really trying very hard to bring sort of a voice of reason to this debate over these animals that may or may not exist. The possibility that there might be a a real biological entity behind these sightings, whether it's Sasquatch or Black Panthers or Chupacabra, whatever cryptid you want to choose, there might be a biological entity of some kind behind these visuals. And you can be curious and not be a lunatic. That's what I'm trying to get across to people. Yeah, sure. And be prepared to believe, even if you've got to be more on the sceptical side. Could we make a link between trying to get evidence for black panthers, cryptic large cats, to cryptic large hominids um, or primates, and Talk about trail cameras and the idea that you guys have got to use a camera wall 
and it's been discussed by some of the people who use trail cameras for big cats in Britain. And it's a question of having the land availability and the funnel. It's basically finding a funnel in the landscape, a pinch point in the landscape where the animals, the mammals who go through there have literally physically got to go because they're going to be channeled. And so a deep valley would be a good example. And you guys are going to set up or have set up uh, a wall uh, of trail cameras. Is that right? We're in the process of, of getting that done as we speak. That's correct. Uh, we have gained access to and located a, a choke point, a funnel, as you mentioned, uh, in a deep valley between two mountains. And anything that goes through there, we have a brilliant member, an engineer named Ed Harris, who has laid this whole thing out. Basically, you've got a camera overlapping a camera, watching a camera, watching a camera. But anything that comes through there, even if it sees and identifies one camera, and, and make no mistake, I, I don't think these animals know what a camera is, what it does. But I do believe that they are masters of their environment and they zoom in and pick out something that's out of place right away. And get fully suspicious of it. And avoid it. Right. They associate that's not natural or that has something to the level they can. I'm not trying to, uh, to attribute human-like reasoning to them necessarily, but that has something to do with people. People are bad news or that doesn't belong here. I'm staying away from that. What we're trying to do is set it up where to avoid one, you got to walk in front of another. And it, it's over quite a bit of space. And as you can imagine, it's a pretty expensive endeavor and involves a large number of cameras that we are going to camouflage as, as best we can. We have uh, some guys that have done tremendous work with taking natural barks from trees that grow in the area and, and affixing it to the cameras themselves. If you're looking straight at one of these things, you would never know it was there. Mm. Um, sometimes where you run into a problem is in profile. When you see it from the side, it projects out from the diameter of the tree a little bit, and that can be a problem. And, and again, we're trying to set it up where something nice comes at it from that angle and goes around it to avoid it. We've got another one there to, to take its picture. That will physically camouflage them pretty well, and it will mask the smell to some extent, presumably. That's the idea, yes. And the one real concern we have is where these cameras are, there's a very high density of black bear. They really love the smell of anything that's petroleum-based, like mm. a plastic. So the housing of these cameras, they love to chew on them and to tear them up. So we have struggled in the past. We've put them in these heavy steel bear boxes that protect them. But they just stick out like a sore thumb. Uh, they just create such a huge profile. And what we're trying to photograph is very furtive, very elusive. And we just feel like it's just far too obvious. So we're going to camouflage them up as best we can. And we're going to take our chances with the bears. And hopefully we will get the photograph or the footage that we desire before the bear eats all our cameras. It can be very entertaining watching pictures of large mammals smash up cameras, can't it? It's entertaining when someone else has paid for the camera that's being eaten. When it, when it, yeah. <laughs> when you're the one who who bought it, that's a little more painful. But uh, you know, it's fascinating nonetheless. Yes, and the camera wall is going to be about three or five deep, isn't it? I mean, because you realise the best trail cameras can be unreliable. And oh yeah, we we have found that out. That's one thing. A lot of the skeptics, the critics, who want to know why no pictures, even the best of them are fairly unreliable. I always say they're blunt instruments, trail cameras, actually. 
it's better than having nothing out there. And certainly there are some that are higher end than others, but numerous examples where we have watched a large animal. There was several years ago, we had three of the best commercially available cameras triangulated on one general spot. We watched a 300 pound black bear just kind of amble through there very slowly, didn't like bolt through and not one of those cameras went off. That kind of taught us a lesson right there. And we got off cameras for a while because we just didn't feel the technology was up to the task. And looking at things now, the trigger speeds are much faster. They are more sensitive. And so we're giving them another try. Yeah. And I think the more you use, the more chance you give yourself as well. And I was asking... Um, well, sure. Yeah. Sure. I was asking one of your colleagues, Matt Pruitt, who recommended some great Tiger books to me recently, which I'm now reading in lockdown. <laughs> They're very useful to read about tigers for black leopards here in Britain. I was saying, have you used mirrors? Have you put up mirrors of different sizes by cameras? Because you can see on YouTube and on the internet various projects around the world with primates where and other mammals where they do stop and quickly assess the situation and the threat of or whatever of seeing themselves in reflection. And a, tr a camera by that is A, entertaining, but B, could be very helpful for your in investigations perhaps. Mm -hmm. I don't recall ever using a mirror of any substantial size. We had, in, in a lot of our membership, they, they've done things kind of on their own, near their homes and in other areas. But, you know, we've had people string the, the CDs, the compact discs or DVDs. They kind of hang and they twirl and they reflect the light and, and they're kind of an eye catcher, uh, things of that nature. Yeah. I have seen some of the videos you're talking about of chimps, bonobos, who stop and examine their reflection in the mirror and, and boy, what a great photograph that would be. What I would really like to do is find one of the two-way mirrors and have a camera behind it as opposed to one nearby watching. Instead of having two suspicious things right there together, we would there would only be one and it was the more intriguing of the two. That's something I think could possibly bear fruit for us. So we'll have to try that. You can use the really super small sort of GoPro type little square boxy cameras for those, can't you, with a wide angle? Mm -hmm. Can you just tell us emotionally how it feels to actually experience a huge primate hominid in the deep woods of America? The experience for the common person, it really rattles their cage, so to speak. It changes reality for them. The boogeyman is real. You know, the big hairy monster, you know, out in the woods that you hear stories about, campfire stories. Oh, it's really out there. Now, they're not monsters. We believe them to be just an undiscovered species of primate. But hunting for these things, as a general rule, is 95% boredom and misery <laughs> because it's either freezing cold or boiling hot, mosquitoes all over the place, mm. and 5% terror. I mean, it's, uh, I had an experience this summer we were sitting out in a dark camp. We did not build a fire. We felt like that it might embolden them to get a little closer to be able to see us a little better. And something was just right on the edge of camp, just beating the ground with something. I assume it was a, a large branch or log or something, but just pow, 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 over and over and over again. And this happened three different times. And it was so loud and so close. It it was very unnerving. And you know, we had night vision and we had thermal imagers and we could not find it. It was disturbing to think something that was big enough and powerful enough because these impacts, these were big impact sounds. These were not 
hickory nuts falling and thumping on the ground. This was something that had grasped something else, some object that was heavy and sturdy and was absolutely just pounding on the ground. Uh, You could hear the sound of whatever it was swinging kind of cutting through the air just before it would hit the ground, almost like if you think of the sound of a golfer right before he strikes the ball, the golf club kind of cutting, whistling through the air. You could hear that and then the impact. And it was just over and over and over again for 30, 40 seconds at a time. You know, something has to have hands to do that. A bear can't do that. A raccoon cannot do that. There's, There's nothing that's native to where we are doing our research in North America that can do whatever this thing was, what it did. You know, you have to have hands. Uh, We've had rocks thrown at us. A bear can't throw a rock. You have to have hands to throw a rock. And when you stop and you ponder on things like that, it can uh, raise the goosebumps on your arms uh, to think there's something that looks a lot like us roaming around out in the woods and it changes your reality. There are a lot of people I know who I've interviewed over the years, they were hunters and outdoorsmen for decades, had never seen anything. And then they have an encounter and they sold their guns. They sold their fishing gear. They never went out in the woods again. You know, it just changes everything. So uh, I think we're in a little better shape to handle it, but it, it can still be pretty unnerving and a disturbing thing. It depends on where you are when it happens too. Yeah. If you're in a car, and one crosses the road in front of you, that's one thing. If you're on a, a trail and you come around a little bend in the trail and you, you come within 20 feet of one and there's nothing between you and it, that's a whole different kind of an encounter. And uh, so certainly that exactly how it plays out will affect how a person feels about it. Yeah. I met a lady in last time I was in the States in Colorado and she reckoned she had some on her property and she'd come across one once really close there and it, she said it let out a warning cry, a warning call and the infrasound went straight through her and she felt sick and not herself for two weeks and she said instantly mm-hmm. she was very, very done over by it. Is that credible? It's incredible to me from her conviction and detail. I don't want to disparage her in any way, shape, or form, because there are animals that have that capability. An elephant has the capability to project infrasound. They can communicate over miles and miles of distance that way. Tigers, the tigers that you're reading about, have the ability to do that and kind of zap their prey species with it, kind of paralyze them for a few seconds to get some time to make their pounce. Mm. It would be an unprecedented biological capability for a primate. None of us have ever had that sort of experience. Now, they're out there. There are people like the lady you're talking about who have, and who am I to say what she felt or didn't feel? But we have not experienced that particular thing. Now, to play devil's advocate, the other side of the issue from her, you know, just fear itself can be debilitating. You can be so terror stricken that you are paralyzed, you know, that you just can't move. Uh, and it can affect you for a long time. You know, PTSD is a real thing. And I've often wondered if some of the after effects, like she has mentioned to you, might not be more along the lines of a PTSD situation than mm-hmm. having been hit with an infrasound. But having said that, I don't know. Beware of anyone who, who says they're an expert on these animals because there are none. Okay. The vocalizations must be sometimes incredibly um, impactful. 
Yeah, you, and if you think about it, a lot of the reports you hear, the screaming, the growling, the, the huffing, and the shaking of trees or vegetation, these are classic great ape warning tra- Yes, these are intimidation tactics mm. to try to run off whatever it is that has, has invaded their space. And if you think about the typical camper or fisherman on the shore of the, the stream or the river who's blundered into the close proximity to one of these things, and, and you hear that in the middle of the night or while you're out there alone, 99.9% of the time, you're going to pack your gear <laughs> and you're going to get in the vehicle and you're going to leave. The vocalizations we have heard, just you hear about this wild loud roars and screaming. We, we have heard those, but there's a whole range of more subtle. We've heard whistling. Mm. Uh, we've got quite a few bird experts in the group, and we have sent recordings to Cornell, and they said, that's not a bird. We don't know what it is, but it's not a bird. And we've heard these huge, huge, uh, we call them the dynamite sound, because it sounds like a, somebody detonated a huge firecracker or stick of dynamite where it has to be the sound of of a large boulder being slammed down onto another rocky surface. It's just unimaginably loud. And the area where we are, it's very rocky. And again, we attribute that to an attempt to intimidate. The louder I am, the scarier I am, and you're going to be afraid and you're going to leave. We've heard all kinds of vocalizations and sounds, and it, but again, almost all of them can be placed under the umbrella of what you see other great ape species doing. Now, what's interesting is you'll see, well, chimps do that, but gorillas don't, but these things do. Well, gorillas do this. Chimps don't do that, but gorillas do. Well, these things do. You know, it's, it's almost as if they've plucked characteristics from all the great ape species across the planet, and you've got them all rolled into one, plus some of the abilities that being upright and having those those hands, uh, you, you roll that all into one package and it's a, it's a pretty interesting animal. Yes, and the ability to go down to all fours again very quickly if need be. Yes, sir. Correct. Now, I'd noticed also you've done a kid's book on the subject on the wood apes on Sasquatch and right on the cover you've put the foot coming down to illustrate the mid-tarsal break. Could you quickly explain that? Because I think it's a very important bit of science in the subject. We have a rigid arch. These creatures seem to have a very flat foot. They don't have that raised arch. And they have what you're alluding to, the mid-tarsal break. A lot of them exhibit this. And it would really be, if it's true, it's a pretty elegant adaptation that they have evolved to help them walk over rough and rocky or difficult geography, so to speak. Uh, it would be ideal for something living out in the wilderness. And, but basically what it is, it's, it's a flexion point more toward the middle of the foot. I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. Jeff Meldrum's work. He is a specialist on primate feet and morphology, and uh, he can explain it much better than I can, but it's, it's an adaptation. I think the first time anyone paid attention to it were in the prints that were left in the sandbar after the Patterson-Gimlin footage was shot. Everybody's pretty much familiar with that footage of the the wood ape, the Sasquatch, walking from left to right away from these two guys across that sandbar near Bluff Creek, California. It was shot in 1967. What a lot of people don't know is that there was physical evidence left behind after that. The tracks of this animal were left behind. And as those were examined and cast, some of those tracks exhibited this feature. 
And it's something that makes it, their foot quite different than that of a human foot, even though there are, you know, obviously similarities, but it's just an adaptation makes their foot much more flexible. And it's something that would allow them to walk over rocks and things that would just have us go down to our knees on if we stepped on it. And consistent throughout all the good plaster cast specimens that Jeff Meldrum and anybody else has got and taken. Yes. Of course, the quality of the casting has a lot to do with it. Um, that's another sort of myth that you can go out into the woods and just find these pristine tracks of any animal, for that matter, that are just like the picture in the textbook or on the poster, you know, that you have. It's just, you know, there's so much leaf litter and clutter on the forest floor. A lot of the areas where these things are said to live, you go up in the Sierras out west, you go southeast Oklahoma or Texas, where there's just not a lot of spots that are conducive to leaving tracks. But we find quite a few what we call impressions. Yes. They're roughly foot-sized, and they appear to be made by something walking on two feet in a bipedal fashion. But a lot of those beautiful details with the toes and the mid-tarsal break and all the, the dermal ridges and all these things you hear about from time to time, those are pretty rare finds. They just don't seem to walk through that perfect substrate very often. And when they do, they just don't last very long before they deteriorate. And I tell you what, you know, if you find a pristine big cat track, you better stand up and look behind you because, <laughs> because those tracks don't last very long. And if it's in that perfect condition, that probably means it hasn't gone too far. And that's a pretty fresh track. Well, thank you so much for bonus observations on the wood ape on Sasquatch. I hope you've had good feedback for your children's book. It looks a splendid thing. I have. It was fun to write. And there's something in it for young kids, even if they don't read. The the, the illustrations are beautiful. You alluded Mm. to the cover. An Arkansas-based artist named Robert Swain did the artwork, and it's fantastic. You know, I told him I wanted something that was beautiful to look at, colorful. And the book I had in mind for my childhood was Where the Wild Things Are. Yes. And I said, I want something that's visually along those lines. What you see on the cover doesn't even do justice to the work he did in the book. He did uh, these huge two and a half by three foot watercolor paintings, each illustration that were scanned in. He just did an amazing job. And it's a beautiful book to look at. Kids that are reading will like it. And there's a section in the back, we call it the Sasquatch Insider. What we've done is we got together and we came up with some little tidbits that he kind of hid within the illustrations that have to do with Sasquatch, would a Bigfoot lore, um, famous stories, or different things, the mid-tarsal break in, in some of the tracks that are illustrated in the book, for example. If you go back to this page, it'll tell you, go back and look at the picture of that track, what you see there, that's the mid-tarsal break, and here's what that is. And even the names of the characters in the book are taken from basically Sasquatch lore and history historical uh, reports and things. So there's something there for the very young to basically adult, that that insider portion that's in the back there, which is one of my favorite parts of the whole thing. And give us the title, Michael. It's called Patty, a Sasquatch Story. After the Patterson-Gimlin footage. Yes, sir. It's it's basically a reimagined version of why that animal happened to be at that location when those two guys showed up and got that film footage. It's the story of why she was there, basically from her side of things. That's the genesis of the idea in the book. 
Splendid. Okay. Can we finish on just your view on the culture shock of these things? Now, clearly, you guys trying to reveal as much as you can evidence for uh, the Sasquatch, the Wood Ape and the Black Panthers. I mean, that's going to be a big shock to a lot of people in society when you make more progress on that. Can you imagine that it's the same in Britain for our Black Panthers, whatever they are, melanistic leopards in the main, we think? I think there is a, a parallel there. It is going to be shocking. It, it'll be, um, I was going to say the discovery of the century, but I think it's bigger than that. Um, and certainly there are going to be some people it frightens terribly. The counter to that that I would offer is they've always been there. You know, you've gone camping a hundred times and everything's fine. And okay, now you know they're there. Well, it's, it's still the same. The difference is just your perception now. But I think for as many people it frightens, I think there will be at least that many people who are now intrigued and will want to get out. I think it could be a great tool for the conservation movement. My personal view is what we have in Oklahoma, Texas, Arkansas is probably the same species as whatever is roaming around the Pacific Northwest. There are differences in size reported and there are differences in temperament sometimes. But I look at the same way I would look at, at white-tailed deer. Deer up north in Minnesota, in Canada, they are a hardier, more robust than the white-tailed deer we have in Texas. It's because of the weather. It's so much colder up there. They need that body mass to, to help regulate temperature. It's called Bergman's Rule. It has to do with you know the amount of body mass you need. That's why some of those animals up in those northern woods in North America are so huge. Take a moose, for example. The black bear farther north are much bigger than the typical black bear we have down here in, in Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas. So I think that could account for some of the variations in size. Once we have the Bigfoot Jane Goodall, maybe that person can explain some of those differences. Great. I want to thank you so much, Michael, for covering all of that material. It was fascinating, and we thank you for that and um, look forward to keeping in touch. So thank you very much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. Well, thank you for having me. It was most enjoyable. Before we close, just to point out that we'll be back to America to learn about pumas in two or three instalments over the next year or so. In a couple of months, we'll hear about investigations in the northeastern states, such as Connecticut, Maine and New Hampshire, where communities see pumas, but there's no official recognition of them. And then, whenever I can rearrange my trip to Oregon and the western states, I'll be with some people tracking pumas and monitoring them when they get close to the suburbs and people and their pets. Staying abroad, look out for the Big Cats Australia documentary, The Hunt. It's out on Discovery Channel on 5th of May. That should give a good profile to our friends on the case in Australia. And even the trailer for The Hunt is proving really popular, I'm told. Now, on the Big Cat Conversations website, we've got several links for the things we've touched on in this episode. We've put a link to Michael May's excellent book, Shadow Cats, that we've just heard all about, and there's a link to his blog site and his Facebook site, Texas Cryptid Hunter. And the podcast that Michael's organisation produces is called Apes Among Us. And as we speak in late April 2020, the latest episode might be groundbreaking because it interviews the African lion and elephant expert Gareth Patterson. Gareth Patterson's new book is Beyond the Secret Elephants, and he's a renowned naturalist, so I suspect it will become an influential book. OK, back to American pumas and panthers. 
Something Michael and I didn't mention is a video clip of what seems to be a large dark cat, possibly a puma, taken in 2017 in the state of Mississippi. For anyone interested in the black puma debate, it's well worth a watch, and you can judge for yourself. If you Google Mississippi Hernando Puma, you might get to it straight away, and we've got a link to it on our website. Okay, next one is the new documentary from Wisconsin. It's got a great title, Return to Wildcat Mountain, Wisconsin's Black Panther Nexus. And yet again, this looks a really well-made programme, and it thickens the plot on large black cats that people encounter. And here's the thing for me. We have Black Panther Mysteries ongoing in America, in different parts, in Australia, in different parts, and across Britain. And in each of those areas, the puma, standard pumas in their honey blonde colour, seem to crop up alongside the black panthers. Maybe it's not such a mystery, because the puma is a generalist cat which can manage fine in a wide range of habitats and temperatures, just like leopards can. But what if some of those pumas are some of the black cats as well? So I'll sit safely on the fence on that one for now and we'll continue to explore this wider geographical aspect of the subject on future podcasts. For next time's episode, we're in the English Midlands and we're also in Monmouthshire and the theme is horse behaviour. Our first guest had a horse attack and that was verified by a vet as from Big Cat Impacts. Our second guest is a horse trainer We'll hear about his perspective on horse behaviour and big cats. He had a big cat sighting in Warwickshire. He investigated a deer kill on his land. And over in California, on a visit, he had a close-up view of a puma in the wild. So all of that coming up next time. OK, that's everything for now. And thanks again to Michael Mays for allowing us to tap all of his experience. Thank you everyone for your company. And we must all stay strong while the lockdown continues. So take care and bye for now.